Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and the greatest of emergency medicine, where we keep you guys smart by spoon-feeding you the literature. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And recall that we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just reach out and we will help you out. This is the audio version of the past week's article summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors Megan Hilbert, Laura Murphy, Millie Cassé, Christopher Thome, Michael Stoker, and of course, Clay Smith. So without further ado, I bring you the first article titled POCUS Literature Primer, Key Papers on POCUS in Cardiac Arrest and Shock out of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, of course, we all want to be just like the experts. And to be like the experts, we need to know everything that they know. Luckily, we can just ask those smart people what papers they found the most influential for their fields. Here we have 14 POCUS experts who sat down by modified Delphi process and compiled a list of the 10 most influential POCUS papers on cardiac arrest and the evaluation of shock. This reduced the amount of work that you'd have to do to catch up with the experts from a Herculean task to something, of course, kind of reasonable. Now, they themselves actually condensed everything down, all summaries of these articles, into just seven pages, and so it's really worth a read. The authors did a wonderful job of doing this as well. They were very succinct in their summaries, but I feel bad not offering any tangible clinical knowledge in this summary. So I'll go ahead and shorten their summaries even further, but urging you to go read their paper. I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, so I know you guys are not likely to go find the link. I'll just do my job and make it all into a spoonful. So here's the first five articles about cardiac arrest. First, from 2016, a study by Gaspari et al. suggested that cardiac activity on the initial POCUS during an arrest was strongly associated with ROSC and survival to hospital discharge and was able to identify several life-threatening diagnoses that could be addressed emergently. Then there was a study by Blavis and Fox from 2001 of 169 convenience patients, and none of those with cardiac standstill on the initial POCUS obtained ROSC. Then a study by Lalande et al. from 2019. This was a meta-analysis that showed cardiac activity had an odds ratio of 17 for ROSC, and 8 for survival to discharge. From this study, though, absence of cardiac activity was not a very good predictor for not getting ROSC, though. Then another study by Gaspari et al. from 2017. Again, those with organized cardiac activity have better outcomes, especially if they were given infusions of continuous adrenergic medication for their PEAs. Then the last of the five articles on cardiac arrest, an article by Atkinson et al. from 2017. They did a Delphi of their own and came up with that you should be obtaining either subxiphoid views or parasternal long views during rhythm checks. And then you should only be attempting to do the POCUS video interpretation after CPR has restarted. Don't prolong those rhythm checks. And then next there was five articles on shock. First it was an article by Jones et al. from 2004. This was an RCT showing that POCUS, when done early, narrows the differential diagnosis pool by about half and made you more likely to actually have the correct diagnosis. 
Then another study by Atkinson et al. from 2018. This was another RCT comparing POCUS to no POCUS, and outcomes for patients appeared to be identical, though there was some strong potential for bias here. Then a study by Shokui et al. from 2015. In a convenient sample, this showed that POCUS reduced diagnostic uncertainty and 12% of the time even changed disposition. Then a study by Stickles et al. from 2019, a meta-analysis of the RUSH protocol showed impressive likelihood ratios favoring its use. And then lastly, Pereira et al. from 2010, this was a narrative review which formally described the RUSH protocol, which had previously only been outlined in blog posts, essentially from MCRIT. And that's it. In a spoonful, I hope this inspires you to go read some more about POCUS. And then we skip to the third article. Titled, High-Dose versus Low-Dose Intravenous Nitroglycerin for Sympathetic Crashing Acute Pulmonary Edema, a Randomized Control Trial, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. SCAPE! Everyone remembers what SCAPE is, right? It's this flashy emergency medicine term for flash pulmonary edema that when I talk about it with other people, it seems that no one has ever heard of it outside of our tiny little emergency medicine community. Spread the love, people. Let people know what you're talking about. Also, you know, share the podcast. Anyways, as I was saying, SCAPE is an acronym for Sympathetic Crashing Acute Pulmonary Edema. It's a very scary thing. These patients are very sick, and they can quickly circle the drain as they have this bad negative feedback loop. They have increased sympathetic tone, which increases the afterload, which worsens their heart failure, which causes, of course, pulmonary edema, which means that you can't breathe and nothing jacks up your sympathetic drive quite like air hunger does. But we can break the cycle. We can quickly turn these patients around if we take the right steps quickly. Those steps are non-invasive ventilation. You want to give these patients a lot of PEEP by BPAP or CPAP, and then you want to reduce the afterload with nitroglycerin. The question that I didn't think was actually a question was how much nitroglycerin to give. I think we know by now that you kind of have to go big or go home. There's no homeopathic doses of nitroglycerin for these patients. Sure is nice to see RCT data on this kind of thing, though. So here we have an open-label RCT of 54 patients from a tertiary emergency department in India, comparing the efficacy of high-dose versus low-dose nitroglycerin to treat SCAPE. The high-dose strategy was a bolus of 600 to 1,000 micrograms of nitroglycerin, followed by an infusion of 100 micrograms per minute, versus the low-dose strategy of just 20 to 40 micrograms per minute without a bolus. At 6 hours, symptom resolution was seen in 65% of the high-dose group, compared to just 3% of the low-dose group. At 12 hours, 89% of the high-dose group was symptom-free, versus just 20% of the low-dose group. Obviously, low-dose isn't just a low-dose, it's too low a dose. Honestly, though, you could go even higher depending on your patient. MCRIT recommends a bolus of 1,000 to 2,000 micrograms and then an infusion of 100 to 300 micrograms per minute, which you could jack up to as high as 800 micrograms per minute. Now, we don't actually have enough evidence to say what the absolute best dose is here, but we certainly know that you cannot go with a low dose. In a spoonful, don't go easy on scape. Hit it hard with high-dose nitroglycerin infusions of at least 100 micrograms per minute. All right, that's all the articles we're going to be covering from this week, but we'll be back next week. What did we learn today? From the first article, there's a perfect POCUS primer out there to get you up to date on the basics of the field. 
from the third article, we call it high dose now, but hopefully soon it will just be standard dose nitroglycerin for scape. Try to dose at at least 100 micrograms per minute. Again, if you're hearing this right now, then you're not part of the member's feed, and so you actually missed three articles from this past week. One was about more reasons to do thrombectomies in big strokes. Second was a randomized trial on lidocaine patches for chronic neck pain. And then finally, someone pit Reboa head-to-head against thoracotomy, and Reboa was the slow one. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a little bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives one spoonful at a time. Thank you.